Welcome to Flat Sharp. This is the podcast where we take two songs an episode. We use those songs as a window into music, pop culture, and beyond. I'm Benjamin Rush. And I'm Matt Soraka. So if you're new to Flat Sharp, here's how it works. Each episode is a random pairing of two songs, one that I bring and one that Matt brings. Um, although for this episode, we're doing something slightly different. Um, is it is it okay to say happy anniversary? It is, and happy anniversary <laughs> to you. So um, last February, we published um, episode one. That's right. Which was Guns N' Roses. And the band. And the band. And you brought Guns N' Roses, I brought the band, and... I think almost of the week, it's about a year ago. Yeah. So, you know, we want to pause and, and thank our listeners. Uh, it's It's been an, an awesome first year of this podcast. So thank you so much for supporting us and listening to us and recommending it to friends. Um, so for this episode, we decided to do something slightly different. Mm-hmm. So the challenge was to choose any artist that the other person had originally brought. Right. So we have, I think... Uh, about 16 choices we could have we could have chosen, right? Yeah. So I could only pick artists that you had uh, spoken about and vice versa. Exactly. So we have repeat artists, but different songs by those artists. So um, I went ahead and went back to episode one, mm-hmm. and I brought a song by the band called In a Station for this episode. Okay, and I went to Stevie Wonder, which, uh, as you recall, that was our only guest today. That's right. We had Reuben Jackson on. The great Reuben Jackson. Um, and that was such a great conversation. I love Stevie's catalog. So I chose a song called Mistra Know-It-All off of Inner Visions. All right. So the first song we're going to talk about today is the song that you brought, Matt, which is He's Mistra. Mistra? Know-It-All. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Um, from Stevie Wonder's classic 1974 album inner visions um we've done a prior episode on stevie wonder but how about just a quick reorientation of who stevie wonder is stevie wonder is an american singer songwriter producer performer born in saginaw michigan michigan 1950 and i mean is best known for being stevie wonder for songs like (laughs) superstition for being an amazing performer he plays nearly every instrument on this album inner visions yeah um and that's the case for several albums he's put out. Um, he's also known as a child prodigy of both piano, harmonica, vocals, um, sunglasses, <laughs> and dancing. Um, and just an amazing force in American music in the middle to, to, to currently in American music. Um, does that cover the bases well enough? Does that yeah. do it justice? I mean, how can you wrap up Stevie Wonder? In no, you can't. I mean, maybe a final thing we could say is to say that when this album is coming out, he is he is well in his stride creatively and in the middle of what people will later call his classic. Correct. Period. Right. Which yeah. is really about what four albums? Yeah. Four or five albums. Just right. a ridiculous run. Right. Of of greatness. All right. So you know, with Stevie Wonder, it's. There's so many great songs that you could choose if you're going back to Stevie Wonder. And I was even thinking, you know, what would I have chosen if we had gone back? What would again? you have chosen? I honestly don't know. There's so many good ones. Even off this album, there's yeah. seven or eight songs that I would oh. love to talk about. Like What's Too one? High Too or high. Golden Lady yeah. or Higher Ground. You know what I would have chosen. We just joked about it off air. What, what was it? If, if it's magic. If it's magic. Then why can't it be everlasting? So anyway, you chose He's Mr. Know-It-All from Intervisions. Just curious why this tune of, of any Stevie songs you could have chosen. Sure, and I'm, and I'm right with you. We're like, just to go back to Stevie, it was such a task. So I had to narrow 
in my focus and, and really, I think, ask myself, why choose this specific song? Because I, I would love to talk about any of the songs you just mentioned. Two reasons. One, the groove of this song, I feel like, is infectious and such a great example of what Stevie does in the studio, largely left to his own devices. What contributes to the groove? Like, Well, I think break that down. his drum playing. Yep. And he's playing to himself, right? So that adds, it's almost like when we talked about the Beach Boys, how they're, they're related. So when they sing, those voices have a natural cohesion to them, right? right. When, you're, when you're playing to yourself, you know, he's drumming to his, his, um, his synth tracks or to his, his vocals or he's, he's, it's so organic and it just feels so organic, this groove. This is a song that does not feature... Stevie on bass, a, a guy named Willie Weeks is playing bass here, who I did some digging into, and he's, I think, tied closely to Clapton and Clapton's Crossroads Festival. He plays bass with Clapton. A lot. Okay. So he's a kind of well-known, established studio guy. Very young at this point in his career. But aside from Willie Weeks, Stevie's playing everything that you hear. Um, and that just, I think, lends, in, which is the case with Superstition, any song you could name where he is just doing everything. It just feels so tight and so good, but also not sterile. It feels like organic and... and it feels like he is his own metronome, which he is. And so it feels like just you're hearing what this guy has in his mind. Reason number two I brought the song is it seemed to be a song that could have been written last week after watching our current president's press conference. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was listening to the song in preparation, I was struck by <laughs> how, yeah, it absolutely could be a contemporary song and be very much about the current political landscape. Right. And or about our current president. Right. He's a man with a plan. Got a counterfeit dollar in his hand. He's Mr. Know-it-all. Playing hard, talking fast, making sure that he won't be the last. He's Mr. Know-it-all. I feel like it's so easy now to go into this Trump bashing Especially we live in Vermont, let's yeah. face it. Bernie lives a mile from us. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't want that this to be the tone of that, but it just it feels like at this point, Trump has made himself such a target for honest debate around what he's saying and what he's doing or different things, it seems like. You know yeah. what I mean? So for example, the third verse, right? Makes a deal with a smile, knowing all the time that his lies a mile. He's Going back to, what was it, two weeks after the election, they were still talking about, or Trump was still talking about, and Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway, the size of his inauguration crowd. Yeah, And they still. were still arguing about that. And reporters, you know, were saying, well, we have the numbers here. We have the photos. You know, it's it, what you're saying and what you're doing are different things. When he's talking about um, at the at the press conference and he said, you know, I have the I, I got the most electoral votes of any of any president. And so I forget what what reporters shot up and said. Actually, it's not true. And he said, "No, I, I meant I meant Republican candidates." He said, "Actually, well, George W. Bush had sixty more than yeah. <laughs> you know." He's like, well, I was he, given that number. And then he says, "I was. I'm sorry. I was. I was given. Look, I was given that number. Here's the buck. I'm going to pass it right off to somebody else. You know, it's just it's amazing. And so I think this song connects with that. Um, did you bump into this? That largely it's attributed that it's maybe written about Richard Nixon. 
Yeah, I think that's that's you know so, a somewhat common belief. Yeah, I don't know that Stevie Wonder himself has chimed in a lot yeah. on that. I didn't find anything where he he squarely said that. Um, you could certainly imagine that to be the case with how Nixon, the Nixon presidency ended. Sure, um, I mean you know just this larger sense that you know the, the the figure in the song is someone who is kind of willing to say anything, who right. you know is kind of shaping his own reality mm-hmm. through smiles and money and power mm-hmm. and and. The thing that struck me a little bit about the uh, Trump connection is just kind of that, like, the power of the self. Yeah. Like, if you took my advice. Yes. You know, you'd be a better person. You'd right. be happier. You'd be wealthier. Right. You know, I alone. Right. You know, and that's a lot of, you know, the the, the POV that Trump stood by, which, you know, was he, very appealing to a lot of people. And, yes. And helped, helped him get elected. The right. sense that, like, I know. I have the best words. I have the... It's superlatives. Everything's superlative. And even now right? with, with critiques of the media, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a paradigm being created where... You know, only listen to me. Everything else is fake news. Everything else right. is suspect. So yeah, that that cult of personality is a lot of what this song is about. Um, I love this verse as well. This seemed to tie in and echo to me the whole Trump University scandal, which I think is is <laughs> that still you. ongoing. You know, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a class of 2004. Really, I was I was six. A little yeah. bit, yeah, a little bit after that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but what what's the line? If he shakes on a bet. He's the kind of dude that won't pay his debt. I mean, how many accusations have we heard of him, you know, scamming contractors and not paying employees and, you know, this and that. And Trump University was like, what, it's like 36,000 plaintiffs or something yeah. like that? I don't know what it was, you know, but. I mean, what's interesting is like, depending on where you stand in the political landscape, this song could be about your target of choice. Absolutely. So like, you know, if you're if you're a Republican and you're not a fan of the Clintons, sure. this oh. could easily be. A conversation about Hillary Clinton, and I think or that, about Bill Clinton. Sh- the, I think those are both fair targets. You know, absolutely fair. So I, I agree with you, and I think the larger point. I mean, we could talk Trump in this song all day. I think the point has been made. Like this seems to be about a guy who cannot own responsibility for anything and thinks that he is the most important person in the room, in a way that's clearly transparent to those who see it. Yeah, you know, and like comically so, where you just, you're just laughing at the screen. I'm interested by the conversation around the First Amendment with this song and um, and, be, and having to hear things that you don't necessarily agree with. I think it's an important thing, you know, and so it's easy for us to shoot spitballs from the back of the room at Trump with this song, but um, something that recently was in the news, and you and I spoke off air about this Milo Yiannopoulos yep. controversy, and for those who don't know, I mean, how do we summarize? Milo um, advertises himself as a, as a troll, internet troll. Yep. Uh, was a, an editor at Breitbart, a senior editor until I think. last week, right? Where his career, career is now in a tailspin, uh, based on some things he said around sexual assault when he was a young man or, or a kid, essentially, right? But he was slated to speak at Berkeley about what three weeks ago, a month ago, I think. Yeah, but there were massive protests and massive violence, massive riots, and to me, it seems like that was such a horrible response to having Milo come to your university. Because the First Amendment is about hearing things that you may not agree with. And it seemed like the, you know, the response from the left and the liberals around Berkeley was the exact opposite of holding up free speech. Just to piggyback on that a little bit. So I think, you know, this idea of free speech and and the cost of being able to say what you want. Right. Right. So like democracy comes with a price tag. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to give people the power to have free speech, 
you're, you're right. You're going to often bump into things that you don't like. That is the price of freedom in mm-hmm. some ways. But like, there's a lot of, there's not like a double-edged sword. There's like a, you know, a 60-sided die of like what terror. Do you mean? Here's what I mean. I, I think, you know, when we talk about debate and not liking things that other people say, the thing that we have in our head is like, you know, you and I don't agree on something. We're both kind of hovering around it and we're mm-hmm. trading barbs and trying to decide and working our way towards, you know, you know, our, our thing. And maybe we don't right. agree, but we respect each other's opinion in the end. I think right now we have this current political moment where people are so far apart from each other mm-hmm. ideologically. Mm-hmm. And when you sit down to talk to someone who feels differently, you feel a million miles away and so suspicious of the other person that yeah. like, that's how we get this Berkeley thing. It doesn't feel like just, Oh, he's it's free speech anymore. It feels like an assault yes. on, on your values, depending on which side of the road you're standing on. Right. It's like, we've lost that civil, civil discourse. Thank you for tying up what I left hanging there. That's, that's the connection. That, and and I, it. and I do think, you know, regardless of how you feel about Trump, I think it's hard not to feel like he purposefully contributes to mm-hmm. a further like separation of of ideological sort of spectrums and seems to benefit from that and, yeah and hence perpetuates it you right? know this is not a person who seems intent on on unification right you know um it's just it's, for better or worse like right. he's been very clear about that right it, it just it's amazing to me that his base his supporters for which you mentioned earlier these people really i mean saw something in him they connected to yeah. which is which is powerful that he got Millions of people stirred up in that way, you know, and people are having a hard time in the country and he was singing a tune that they connected to in some way. But when they see him on stage overtly lying, I wonder what the re- the reaction seems to be. I don't care. He, I like he's telling it like it is. I just don't know. I'm it's 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 a it's curious to me that we're in that kind of landscape where truth is just one angle you can play yeah not the only angle you know what i mean you know thinking about this song and the lyrics you talked about the lyrics being a little bit broad and a little bit Mm -hmm. vague and they are you know you could apply them to a lot of different contexts and i think in some ways you know that could be a criticism of the lyrics you know that they're not specific but in they have a universality that that is a bit timeless Mm -hmm. i think of a different kind of political song like um neil young's song ohio much more specific that's far more specific yeah. you know and name specific events you know and and things that i think make it powerful but not necessarily timeless because it's so specific to to a moment right whereas this song feels like it's generally about anybody who practices this kind of you know um public persona yeah or demonstrates and that so you could easily pull this out of 1974 and drop it into yes. into today's moment and it feels just as relevant depending on who you want to point it at right right and again i think it's so important and my larger point here and i think you know we are talking from the same side of the table here not literally but figuratively um is that first amendment and is so crucial because you have to bump into things that are totally opposite to what you believe to to move yourself forward think in in your thoughts sometimes right to only exist in an echo chamber is is dangerous i but, think but but i know? think that kind of thing only works when you believe that both people are forthright that's the and, point and, right and you know if, if that paradigm changes dramatically if one of those two people having that conversation is either lying yes or be actively working to subvert and undermine the other person's perspective yes you know in a nasty way then or, then it starts to fall apart pretty quick yeah i mean or delusional to the point that they've talked themselves out of the conversation because they're just not on the same plane of, as, of reality as everyone else. 
So let's get back to the song. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think we could we could highlight Stevie Wonder's incredible singing, particularly yeah. in the in the latter third of the song. He goes into what you have famously dubbed, I love it, the angry singing. The angry singing. You know, he yeah. sort of ratchets things up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Stevie Wonder knows how to construct the arc of a tune. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows how to how to make a tune rise and mm-hmm. to crescendo. And you really see that in Mr. Know-It-All, mm-hmm. this last bit. You oh, know, he yeah. throws in some some syncopated hand claps. Yes. You know, um, he it's goes all, into this guttural thing with his yeah. voice. And I think it's because the foundation is so solid that he can then dress it up with nice furniture in the room, like the hand claps and the, the different approach to vocals. Um yeah, it's a great song. I wanted to highlight and give a shout out to these two lesser known people. We talked about them with Ruben last time. The two um, audio engineers who invented this synthesizer called the Tonto Synthesizer, which stands for, I'm going to read this here, the, it's an acronym. So the original new timbrel orchestra. Okay. So this thing is the largest polyphonic analog synthesizer in the world still to date, which means that it's a series of synthesizers that are all working together right and so we we talked about this in the last episode but these two uh guys are credited as producers on this album and they won a grammy on this album for audio engineering uh the only one they they ever won with stevie and you hear the tonto on the song in the background as these flutes that come in they're like these like weird bird-like flutes um i'll pull up a clip and we can we can check it out cool With technology today, that maybe feels like no big deal. You know what I mean? But in 1973, certainly 1970, uh, when he was starting to play with this stuff, or 71, when is Music of My Mind? 71, 72? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think 71. Th- that's huge. I mean, that's that's a whole new palette to play with sonically as an artist. Um, not to mention that he, there's a great um, Netflix, or I think I saw it on YouTube, documentary called What's it? Uh, Stevie's Wonder Men. Okay. And it's about Robert Margulov and um, Malcolm Cecil, the two audio engineers who developed Tonto. And it's about their work with Stevie and how they would, the three of them, be in a room together, which it would take a room to house. The size of the synthesizer is, is just enormous. And so they would be programming sounds as he's playing. So it's really like a very um, collaborative process of playing this instrument together, you know? I don't think I can think of other instruments where it takes many people to play at the same right. time, you know? You know, kind of a cool connection to the other band that we're going to talk about, the band, is that the keyboard, you know, the, the organist in the band, Garth Hudson, yes. was also someone who's really curious about technology and about new trying sounds. to come up with new sounds. So Absolutely. I guess, you know, one thing I like about the focus on the Tonto stuff is that it, it speaks to, like, the spirit of innovation mm-hmm. that that is really dominant in Stevie Wonder's music throughout this period. It's a great point. That he's not just writing great straight-ahead songs mm-hmm. and, and laying it down. He's also innovating mm-hmm. and pushing music forward, mm-hmm. you know, technologically. Mm-hmm. So he's a super curious guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, mean, he had had hit after hit in the 60s. He could have kept doing yeah. Motown-flavored stuff. He could have stayed right in that mold. Uh-huh. And instead, he just was restless and he wanted to make new things. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. Um, so I guess I want to give a shout out to those two, um, those two audio engineers who, when you talk about Stevie wonder, I mean, those two names were new to me 
in August when I was researching for the last one. I'd never heard of these guys, you know, and they are such a sound in that classic period. I would argue they, without them, there is no classic period. Mm-hmm. Like I would make that argument because of the, the production, um, you know, touch they bring to his, his songs. It seems like when you have the convergence of like amazing artist, um, like really maybe new or um, novel technology, great producers and um, great songs, you have just a recipe for an amazing product. Yeah. So I was thinking of other combinations in the past. And the first one that came to mind was, okay, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. Right. I mean, out of the park. And again, a short period of clap, like what, two or three albums, you know? And you've definitely got like the Beatles with George Martin and Jeff Emmerich. Absolutely. And I was thinking of, are there other more contemporary examples that you or I can think? I mean, Radiohead's worked with Nigel Godrick, that producer for a while. It seems to be a fruitful um, pairing. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I would probably tilt even more towards hip hop. Mm -hmm. And I would think about, you know, like Eminem and Dr. Dre Mm -hmm. as like great collaborators or like Jay-Z and Rick Rubin, you know, or instances where, you know, great innovative producers were then working with with fantastic hip-hop artists right. helping them sonically you know right. kind of kind of helping them sort of thread those needles there's some amazing hip-hop production teams that have done some really innovative work yeah. um so i think that's where i would maybe look yeah honestly for like the current moment where okay. you see that like beautiful blend yeah. of production artist and innovation right it's something that's hidden from the public view if you don't dig for it right you just hear the you hear the sounds and the singing and the beats but you don't know the work and the chemistry that goes behind that and that yeah. is so crucial um and you're always talking about you two and daniel lanois yeah absolutely. you know it's another like kind of like perfect meeting of the minds just uh, a crucial uh part of the mix so um but that's it i mean we could go on and on about certainly the political stuff and certainly stevie wonder but i think we um we said quite enough we did. Yeah. We did. I'm glad you brought this one. Uh, I've always loved this. And I've always loved it. That's the last song in the album. Because yeah. as I'm listening to Intervisions, I'm always like psyched to hear this song. Mm-hmm. And the one before, which is Don't You Worry About a Thing. Uh-huh. Just like the great, <laughs> the great like two, two song yeah. punch ending, ending of the album. So cheers to you, Stevie Wonder. Cheers. Okay. So next up we have... A song called In a Station by the band. We do. Benjamin, you chose to go back to episode one. And um, I believe it was the second song of that episode, correct? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So two questions. Why would you go back to the band? And why would you go back to this specific song? So I'll try to be somewhat succinct. So the band had been on my mind anyway because I just finished reading Robbie Robertson's recently published memoir called Testimony, mm-hmm. um, which is a, it's a great book. It's just an interesting account of the years where he was playing with Ronnie Hawkins and then the Hawks and then the band. Um, and it really just covers that, that kind of chord musical period. So they've been on my mind. I've been listening to them a lot. So in, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a no-brainer. I didn't okay. even really consider any, anybody else but the band okay. to revisit because uh, they're one of my favorite bands. This song I wanted to highlight because I, I thought it was a much lesser known band song. It is. Um, I think many people probably don't even know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really specifically wanted to talk about it because it's it's not a composition by Robbie Robertson, mm-hmm. which many of the best known band songs like The Wait and Up on Cripple Creek, um, songs like that are, are mostly credited to Robbie Robertson as a sure. songwriter. But this is a song by pianist and vocalist Richard Manuel. And drummer sometimes. And drummer. drummer. Yeah. Apparently he was a great drummer. Right. I don't know how many clips are there are, there are of yeah. him playing drums. 
drums. But right. people said he was just a nasty drummer. Yeah. It's like really good. If you are familiar with the movie The Last Waltz, he's playing drums in the song Evangeline in the oh, soundstage shot. Right. That's him playing. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, reading about Richard's story is is a sad story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like he doesn't get nearly as much sort of attention mm-hmm. in the rock pantheon as I think perhaps he's due. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, his is a story of of you know, I don't know, of talent kind of spoiled in some ways. You know, he had this bright shining moment with the band mm-hmm. and and um, was a famous addict mm-hmm. of, you know, alcohol and, and drugs, mm-hmm. big heroin addict, and ended up uh, committing suicide in 1986. So his is, is not always a happy story to discuss, mm-hmm. but his, his, his singing and his songwriting and his playing with the band is just so beautiful. So it'll be nice to focus a bit on Richard and on a song that he wrote, which in a station fits the bill. All right, so I've committed a slight breach of etiquette here where I didn't ask you off the bat uh, who is the artist. So a quick 30, 45 seconds, who's the band? So the band is an American, well, sorry, excuse me, a mostly Canadian. <laughs> Four-fifths Canadian. Four-fifths right. Canadian um, rock and roll combo, you know, um, best known for being um, Bob Dylan's backing band as the Hawks mm-hmm. in the mid-60s on his famous 66 tour where he went electric and people were booing him. Most of them came up playing with a Rocky Builder singer named Ronnie Hawkins, hence the name the Hawks. They split from Ronnie Hawkins. They backed Dylan for a while. They followed Dylan to Woodstock um, in, in the sort of mid to late 60s um, they hole up there at a, at a famous house that they nicknamed Big Pink because of the famous pink siding over the next couple years they they make beautiful kind of uh, rock and roll folk music um, that will really change the landscape of American music so they're a very popular but incredibly influential mm. band as well uh, famously called the band yeah. because nobody knew what else to call them Okay, so uh, I'm going to kick a question to you here in a second, but I think it's important just to set up a, a, a little bit of context for the album before we get into the uh, in the song itself. So this song, In a Station, is on music from Big Pink, the band's first album, um, largely written during the period they are living at Big Pink, um, this house in, in West Socrates, New York. Um, it's not recorded there. It's recorded in both L.A. and New York City. And this song's recorded in L.A. Yes, Um and so this album comes out in 68 and has three songs on it that are either co-written or just written in the case of I Shall Be Released by Bob Dylan. Uh, this song is not. It's only by Richard Manuel. And I think it's the only one on the album he's the sole writer for. I think that's true. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Um, he co-wrote uh, Tears of Rage, the opener of the album with Dylan. And so Dylan famously was asked to be on the album or offered to be on the album, I should say. And the band, I think, gracefully said, no, thanks. It's important that we strike out on our own here. Um, although he does contribute the artwork to the album. Right. The weird picture of like an elephant and like five, well, <laughs> five and musicians. Six musicians. So, well, yeah. One of them is, I'm looking at the picture here, pushing someone up over the piano. Right. I'm not sure if that's the best way to play the piano, like in that <laughs> arrangement, but... They were trying all kinds of new things. Yeah, very in influential. Those days, yeah. Very influential. So, <laughs> so anyway, first album, like you said, like hugely influential, very organic, very DIY. Um, not recorded at Big Pink. I think that's a misunderstanding. Kind of written there, and the basement tapes were recorded in Big Pink um, and released in the '70s. But this is their first 
their their debut album as a band minus Bob Dylan. Right. And you chose kind of a sleeper on on the album. You didn't pick you could have picked The Weight. Yeah. Everyone knows that. You could have picked Tears of Rage. You could have gone with, you know, that This Wheel's on Fire, all kind of standards. A lot better known songs. Right. And you went with In a Station, um, a song that is a quieter song. And I'll let you explain why you went with that song. You know, one of the reasons was, was like I said before, to focus on Richard, because I think he's a bit of a tragic figure and an interesting presence and just such a heartbreakingly beautiful singer mm. on these first few records that I almost can't even deal with like how emotional his singing is. Mm. It's so gorgeous right. and so beautiful. And he just lays his soul bare when he performs. But the other thing I like about this song is that I think it speaks to the spirit of, of how this music was made. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, the band did have some singles and became very well known, mm-hmm. even, even almost right away. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Eric Clapton and George Harrison were like going to Woodstock to visit these guys, like wanting to like literally join the band. Wanted to like, break up cream. Like, essentially. Yeah, right. Harrison wanted to like leave the Beatles and like join the band. Like that's how influential <laughs> right. and popular these guys were. But, but this happens before that. Mm-hmm. Right. So the spirit in which this music was conceived and made was one that was, just all about collaboration and curiosity Mm. right and so this music was not about hit singles it wasn't even about hey what's going to go on the album Mm. you know so you can imagine in a station being written kind of in this creative you know frenzy where these guys are just kind of collaborating in this house not even sure like what they're doing Mm -hmm. they just love making music together and they, they love it enough and they have enough money and enough focus to record what they're doing and to set it up in a formal way because they were well known and they've got Dylan there and of Mm -hmm. course they're going to push they're going to hit record when they perform but like before music from Big Pink comes out like they didn't they weren't the band yet Right. They were like the Crackers or, you know, this they were m- Dylan's backing. band. Yeah, they were Dylan's backing band or like some dumb name, like the Crackers or the Honkies that they were thinking about being marshmallow overcoat. Right. And so th- this music um, was not intended really for any specific purpose other than just to make music. If you read testimony, you should certainly read This Wheels on Fire as a as a counterpoint to Robertson's take. So This Wheels on Fire is by Levon Helm and it's his story from the band of the band and it's published in 93 or so in the early 90s. But he makes the observation that he was like, you know, it's like we had this clubhouse mentality where, or maybe it's Robertson that had said that, I forget, but that someone would be like making a pot of coffee. Someone would be fixing the screen door. Someone's writing a song on a typewriter. And then when we felt inspired, we'd go down to the basement, we would just play. Mm -hmm. And it was, we were just all there together, you know? And it has that, uh, organic feel to it. I think that's what you're what you're kind of getting at. Yeah, and yeah. I think you can really hear it in different different aspects of the song. It's 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 a very restrained song mm-hmm. that's very patient and and almost kind of like painfully slow. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like this lilting kind of thing. It mm-hmm. starts with this this strange clavinet opening that's almost like a carnival. If you stopped it after three seconds, <laughs> you would have no clue what was coming. <laughs> But then it, it, it drifts pretty casually into this sort of dreamy, like, pastiche, you know? Like, once dreamy. I walk through the station, someone call your name. In the streets, I heard children laughing. They all sound the same. Each stanza has a little bit of a different thing. Like, yeah. Levon, I think, later talked about how 
this was meant to be a tribute kind of this kind of like pastoral landscape that they were living in and like this settled space that they were after being on the road for years with Ronnie Hawkins. Here mm-hmm. they are in Woodstock and they're climbing mountains and spending a lot of time outside. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the imagery that's pretty dreamlike, there's this one image where he climbs a mountain Mm -hmm. and then he falls asleep and Mm -hmm. then he says like i could taste your hair Mm -hmm. you can just imagine these two lovers like in the grass and they wake up with the sun on their faces you know and these beautiful images once i climbed up the face of a mountain and ate the wild fruit You know, I love a lot of the, the, the musicianship here. Richard's singing is obviously just... How, what would you say about Richard Manuel's voice? It's. I mean, I think he is obviously a huge fan of and inspired by Ray Charles. Yeah. And you can hear that in his... Sure. He's also considered by members of the band as like their lead singer. Right. And their kind of secret weapon vocally. And to have that accolade from them, I mean, this guy is a powerful, emotive singer. And I think part of the reason why there's so much acrimony towards people like Scorsese and Robertson because in the movie The Last Waltz he's not really shown all that much. Singing. No. I mean he's pretty strung out then. I yeah. mean I right. from what I understand there was a lot of concern about whether he'd even be well enough to perform uh-huh. at The Last Waltz sure. because he was so strung out on drugs. Um but but elsewhere in this song you hear a lot of these beautiful little touches. So you've got Garth Hudson playing the clavinet, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that Robbie Robertson I think even I've underestimated his guitar playing mm-hmm. over the years because he's not a showy guitar player that often a lot of times he just hits the, the right note for the occasion and they're these you know, i don't know what he's got his guitar playing through you probably do here but um, a lot of reverb it sounds like and he's mm-hmm. got these kind of like these like stabbing high notes mm-hmm. that seem to kind of like talk to the vocals a little bit must be some way to He's someone who is influenced by a player named Roy Buchanan, which right. you and I have spoken about before. Roy Buchanan also met of a sad demise. He hung himself in a jail cell in the 80s. Um, 80s were a tough time for... It's like a Johnny Cash song. That's <laughs> yeah, horrible. Yeah, so he hung himself in a, in a jail cell in 1988. But he was a Telecaster wizard and plays in this kind of picking sharp style that Robertson... So Buchanan was in the band for a little while in the early Sorry, in the Hawks, the Hawks. Hawkins and the right. Hawks in the early, early stages. And at the same time with a young Robbie Robertson, when Robertson was like 17 years old. And Robbie's soaking up everything yes, he can from that guy. Absolutely. And so was really informed by this this technique of playing that Roy Buchanan, who's largely not known. I think many people don't know him. People would probably know his song, his cover of Don Gibson's song, Sweet Dreams, which comes on the ending credits of The Departed, the song, uh, the movie with oh, Matt Damon okay. and, and Baldwin. So that ending song, it's instrumental guitar work, beautiful. That's Roy Buchanan playing. Anyway, but he does this thing called pinch harmonics, which is what you're talking about, where you have the pick in your hand and you you pick a guitar string and then you quickly mute it with the tip of your thumb and it creates a harmonic of that yeah. note you're playing. It's just this super high pitched. And it's Robbie's like number one trick. Oh, he just he employs it so beautifully. 
yeah, it's certainly unique, certainly distinctive. Oh, that's a great explanation. Thank yeah. you for that. Um, you know, elsewhere in the song, there's some really tasteful drumming by Levon Helm. I don't, I don't know what is the opposite of showing off. I'm not sure what it is. Blending in, you know, it's like, like being cohesive. It's like yeah. being invisible, but also being crucial to what's happening too. And to me, that's know? like the definition of, of what you hear on these first two records yeah. uh, and probably that spirit of the basement tapes and why those are such appealing, mm-hmm. you know, sessions to listen to. I think this song captures that spirit really well. There's nothing showy about this tune. Mm-hmm. Everything is built to service the song, the song itself. Yeah. Um, and so the little breakdown at the end where Levon's drumming is so subtle and restrained, yeah. it almost yeah. sounds muted a little bit. And then Richard's falsetto is kind of like just soaring above it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a real dreamlike quality and the band knew how to create those moods. And I think mm-hmm. it's why when you watch the last waltz, they're so able to back muddy waters and then Joni Mitchell and then, you know, Clapton and then Van Neil Morrison, Young, whoever, yeah. like they can play anything without seeming to really know the chords to some of those songs. They're like yeah. looking at Neil Young's hands. Like, what's he on G? Okay. Well, you know, um, I agree. It's, it's amazing. And I love the interplay between Rick Danko's bass playing and Levon's drumming oh. as a rhythm section here. Robbie in testimony, Robbie Robertson talks about how he he calls Rick Danko by far the best harmony singer in the band. And I, I think this guy's an all-time great harmony singer. He, oh, my God. And, and his voice has such a distinct character to it that mm-hmm. you just would know it anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit whiny it's and a warbly. little bit... It's warbly. Yeah. Um, but he can really hit those high notes. Oh and And he, like when, when Richard and Rick harmonize together and then Levon's under there as well. Mm-hmm. You just have this beautiful blend of voices. So and I love Rick singing absolutely. here. And Levon's uh, described it as, we just hit the notes we could hit. We're yeah. not like working out, you know, perfect triads of, you should do the, the third, It's we'll sing what we can sing. Yeah. And it just, the blend is unreal. Must be some way to So, you know, I mean, you know, you and I are, are two of millions that have been sort of smitten, mm-hmm. not only with these songs, but with the story behind their creation. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think it's an all-time great story, and I think it's why it keeps getting retold over yeah. and over again. There is something incredibly romantic and beautiful about this kind of, this stolen moment. What's really sad, and another reason why I wanted to talk about Richard Manuel, is it doesn't even come close to lasting. Right. Not only does it right. not last, it goes down in flames, mm-hmm. you know, and, and by the mid to late 70s, um, the band is not what it was five years before, mm-hmm. you know, drugs have swept through, swept through, you know, and you've got at least two to three heroin addicts and a lot of heavy drug use happening mm-hmm. in the group. Richard, you know, was so strung out on heroin and on alcohol that he would literally not be able to play mm-hmm. and they would get to, to gigs and they'd have to end early right. or they'd have to cancel shows because Richard just couldn't perform. And so when you hear later recordings, you know, early eighties and stuff, when they reconvene, like Richard's voice is, is not the same. Um, takes a toll on the body. You know, he's, he's a, he's a wounded, he's a wounded guy. Yeah. Um, 
It's one of the reasons why I think we're so attracted to him because there's something really beautiful and naked about that, a mm-hmm. la Elliot Smith or, or other. Kurt Cobain, whoever, yeah. in Winehouse. In the book um, that I, the wheel, This Wheel's on Fire, I'm not sure if Robertson touches on this, but um, in one of the band's reunion shows after Robertson had left the band, Levon uh, Helm finds Richard Manuel in a Florida hotel room yeah. having hung himself with his belt. And I think his wife found his it first wife, or his yes, and then they call and then she Levo, went and got yeah. and, and they think, like didn't believe her at first. Right. And I think they like they take him off the shower curtain. They like bring him down. You know, it's like can you picture a more horrific demise? No. You know? Uh, it's about as bad as it gets. And so, you know, Richard, I think, is is a sensitive soul, mm. you know? It's funny, you know, when, when Robbie talks about first meeting him, you mm. know, Robbie is, I think, 17 and Richard's mm. 18. They're kids, mm-hmm. you know? And he talks about how Richard, ha- you know, wasn't even that good of a piano player in mm-hmm. those days. He mm-hmm. was just kind of a good singer, and he had this this other band that he was in, mm-hmm. and he joins the Hawks. And the same with Danko. Like, Danko wasn't even a bass player. Mm. He was a butcher, you know, when he, when you joined, when he joined the Hawks. What do you, you play? Know? Nothing. All right. You're in. <laughs> I'm a butcher. I love that famously, like, Levon leaves the Hawks. You know, so when they first go to Woodstock, mm-hmm. Levon is not with them. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he working chose. On, <laughs> working on an oil rig. An oil rig in Arkansas, right? Or, or something. And, Louisiana. You know, he came back in towards the end of the basement tapes uh, when things started to really get going. Levon, so, you can remain on the oil rig or you can come back to Woodstock and play with Bob Dylan's, you know, band. And Let me get back to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I do want to just circle back to Robbie's guitar playing one more time. I, sure. I think I would encourage anybody who's a fan of the band that maybe hasn't spent as much time. I, I'm also smitten by the vocals mm-hmm. that I feel like I sometimes forget to listen to mm-hmm. to the individual instruments. Um, do you mean on this song or just in general? Just in general. Yeah. I think the yeah. song craft and the singing is always so good that I sometimes forget to go listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but listen to Robbie's guitar playing as you listen to the band. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, a, he's a really tasteful, mm-hmm. dynamic player who's mm-hmm. not a virtuoso by any stretch, but he finds the right notes mm-hmm. and he's got interesting pick styles yeah. um, and an interesting like blend of influences in his yeah. playing. Everything from country to to funk to rockabilly to, to r&b absolutely there's really a lot happening absolutely. i'm trying in, to think of in like the way he plays specific like there's a song off of an album called northern light southern cross you and i both love this album a song called ring your bell okay which is a funky tune that robbie has a lot of those like just shrill o- ophelia also uh, has has like an extended kind of solo great you know great. and again it's not it's not the kind of solo that like drops your jaw but if you really think about what it offers to the song mm-hmm. it offers exactly what the song needs yes So I have a connection to this song and this group that I need to mention. I didn't mention it on episode one. Um, I don't know why. I think because episode one dealt with the next album. Right. With Dixie. I've been to Big Pink two times. See, this is really cool to me. And <laughs> two I, times. And I knew this, but I haven't heard that much of the story because I've, I've seen the picture of Big Pink on yeah, your wall right. at your house. So tell me about Which going is, to Big Pink. It's and- amazing. The first time I went was with my friend Damon, who had been with his father. And so it was his second time going. We went um, to go see Levon play at the Woodstock Playhouse, which is like a central little small theater in Woodstock. So you saw him? Saw him play. Oh. It was unbelievable. It was great. 
played, you know, Rag Mama Rag, played all of the songs Come on, you want. I didn't yeah. know you saw him. Great. He wears Damn. a leather glove when he was playing with his on a snare hand. Oh, <laughs> so good. So we before the show we went to go seek out um Big Pink on Parnassus Lane in West Saugerties. Pulled right up. You can see the pink through the trees as you're pulling up. Did you just have ridiculous goosebumps? Oh, Did it feel it like you were just magical. like in a dream? It was like, magical. It was such an emotional magical trip amazing so you pull right up and you you pull right up to in front of the garage door which leads into the basement where the basement tapes were basically made and conceived you're walking around this house it's you're looking at the front of the album and you're walking around this house yeah you know, i'm peeking in windows i mean it's it's become this kind of informal i think american landmark of music so there's even there was, to my recollection, some kind of like whiteboard that you could read through the window of, of the garage saying, welcome visitors. Like people, the owners know yeah. it's going to attract, you know, music fans. Of, of So I, my understanding is they're, they're very open to, to that, you know. And certainly when you buy a house with that history, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I went there one time with my friend Damon. The second time I went a, a year or so later with my good friend John, who I play music with. And we just had the same experience just you know, I, John took like a pine cone from the yard. He still has and it's like, and his, and his <laughs> desk. To this, yeah. And it was just, you know, I remember walking through the woods and there was an outhouse out in the woods, an old dilapidated outhouse who had, who had urinated in that outhouse. I want <laughs> to this day. I wonder. Just but, to stand in that place where all oh, those people had been and where that, so where that music was made. So special. And so the line that connected me back to that moment was, once I climbed up the face of a mountain, and I think that's written about Overlook Mountain, which is the mountain right next to the yeah. that they would go and 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 climb and and be in in nature right around there. And I mean, it was just so cool, so cool. I mean, you know, if you're not connected to this music, that story probably sounds pretty insignificant. But like to me, it's <laughs> right. like I want to get in my car right now, <laughs> you know, and drive the three hours, yeah. you know, to West Saugerties yeah. or wherever it is. Um, that's really cool. So anyway, it was really. A, I'm glad you brought this so I could voice that story. Okay, Benjamin, this is the point in the podcast where typically we make a connection between artists, between songs or artists. Right. But we're going to forego that, I think. Yes, we're going to do something different. Given that this is the year anniversary, uh, I propose that we share our top three favorite episodes from the past year. Okay. I'm into that. Which this could be one. I'll put that on the table. Okay. This could be a consideration. All right. Um, So... I think just to clarify, we're saying favorite, not best. Personal favorites. So personal favorites. Yep. Okay. So it's not not the same thing as saying I think this was our best episode. It's more favorite just for some reason. We could add the we could add the best on as the last. I'm totally second guessing my choices now. I have no totally I have no qualms. I feel like I need to like stop talking and no like look qualms. back at my list again. But I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to go for it. We have not seen each other's lists as as we like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, are yours in order like one two three? No. No particular order. No specific order. order. Okay. Um, so let's each name one at a time. Okay. Okay, so you you name one. One of my all-time favorites that we've done is easily Billy Joel Elton John. That is also on my list. Yeah, that so was just fun. Billy and Elton was, was ridiculous. Blast. Yep. Um, that was great. I like that one too. Uh, yeah. I like that we had a lot of other voices on that one. Mm-hmm. We had other people chiming in, and mm-hmm. it was just fun to debate yeah. those two. Okay, so that's one that's the same. Number two, what do you have? Um, another one of mine was our Christmas episode. Interesting. Really liked okay. talking Christmas songs. Yeah, for some fun. reason, I just I just felt like it was a blast to talk yeah. about Christmas songs, and it like it just felt like 
you know, a tour back through our childhoods. And, yes. and so I had a lot of fun talking about Christmas okay. songs for some reason. That was not one of mine, but I love that episode. Okay. A second one for me was Beatles Hidden Gems Part 2. Part 2. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was a fun one. I love that one. I thought we really got into some um, songs that were really near and dear to us, and we had a lot of ammo to uh, to fire back and forth there. Yeah, that Beatles was, Hidden Gems could have easily been on my... Yeah. That's like That would have been like the next choice, probably. Sure. And then what's your third My choice? third and final one. I, I hope you agree with me. Maybe not, though. It's got to be the same. It's Huey Lewis in the News and Steely Dan. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, that's, that's my other one. <laughs> Um, okay. How come for you? Oh, well, it's it's a rare instance of us really disagreeing wholeheartedly on a song and artist. Steel yep. Dan, we we don't see eye to eye on. But we, I, th- I thought I had a really good conversation about it. I agree. About that song. And the Huey Lewis was just ridiculous. With the Back to the Future, I love yeah. that whole, you know, because we grew up watching that movie. And so... Marty McFly is near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Those, uh, those, yeah, those, those conversations were pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> now I chose one that I think is our best episode as well. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I can counter that, but I'm totally willing to hear All your, right. your choice. My choice for our strongest episode and at, you know, at the risk of sounding self-serving, I just think it's something that came up, came off the fi- the final product was just done well, I think, and, and sounded and felt like what it was, um, intended to do and to be and it's to spotlight these two performers i think that the elliot smith amy winehouse mm. i would say is probably one of our stronger i would say um, that'd be up there for me if i was to yeah if i was to i mean it's such an arbitrary thing to decide but right yeah i think that one was really successful yeah um, um so that one felt good to me so uh hey listeners if you haven't heard those episodes go back and check them out because those are our our personal favorites if you have a favorite flat sharp episode we would love to hear from you tell us what your episode of choice would be uh you can tweet that to us at at flat sharp pod you can email us at flat sharp podcast at gmail.com we'd love to stay in touch uh we'd also appreciate a rating on itunes or review as well it helps other people find the podcast um thank you so much for a great year matt um here's to another year of flat sharp thank you very much yeah Um, Um, we're gonna keep it going so please keep listening um and we appreciate you out there so that wraps up this episode i am benjamin rush and i'm matt soraka and we'll see you next time